Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Inspiring Leadership. I'm really delighted to have someone I uh, really enjoy working with, getting to know him and his family, um, as a really inspiring leader who has that humility and humanity to always be willing to learn, constantly learning, constantly challenging me not to have too many books to review because he wants to read them after me as well. <laughs> I'll do one a week. Hey, come on, less books. Um, but no, a real pleasure working with him. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm uh, at Holstead. I am the uh, COO for Search Cap, which is a organization focused on developing uh, talent-centric solutions for uh, corporate clients. Uh, I am also the, one of the uh, the founding principals for that organization. Fantastic. And we were talking, you and I, uh, at about um, inspiring leaders and what you know inspiring leadership means to you and the kind of qualities in the people that you could think of that you want to call out and mention them in particular. Who, who would be couple of people you'd like to give a shout out for and why you see them as someone you put up there as inspiring leaders and respect yeah i i think um i think inspiring leaders come in all all shapes and sizes and i think the the first person that springs to mind when they talk about um inspiring leaders in my life and people have sort of put me in the position that i am um they usually come back to the, my my earlier days when i was playing a lot of sports and I think a lot about um, a chap named Pat Fox. I haven't spoken to him in a little while now, but he was our uh, our fitness coach, our conditioning coach at university for the rugby team. Um, fascinating guy, very mild-mannered, but he taught me the art of accountability. Um, and it was something that, even at the age of, sort of 18, 19, had a fairly profound impact on my experience. Um, incredibly humble guy fitness coach for the new zealand all blacks never mentioned it until we uh we discovered it one day at random uh in a uh, in a celebrity meeting at chance but absolutely fascinating and wonderful guy and who was it that you were meeting who was the celebrity that uh that knew him but he'd never mentioned that he'd, he'd uh, been i might i might coach. be misrepresenting this uh this story and i may well have uh edited out a lot of blue language but we had a uh we had a, a photo opportunity for the university rugby team and we had to go down to canary wharf and meet um jason leonard the 100 cap english prop legend um who now gives some fairly uh fairly hilarious but dubious uh, motivational speeches uh, around London and um, we I really can't remember this we for some reason we were on a boat in a lake in Canary Wharf for no apparent reason and uh, Jason Leonard was there and uh, and we got introduced and we were all sort of 18 this all of us very aware that he's the you know the world cup winning legend uh, we shake his hands and go down the line and uh, he gets to Pat Fox and he goes, Foxy, you legend, and says a bunch of other words I won't repeat. 
Um, and that was actually where we learned that uh, Jason Leonard knew Pat Fox on reputation from his time with the, the New Zealand rugby team. And it was, I think it's about three years into knowing Foxy, and he'd never mentioned it. It was, it was fascinating. It is it is nice when people um, are very understated. Um, uh, unlike uh, others, a, a very modest man with much to be modest about. Uh, it was said by, I think, was it uh, one of the politicians around Gladstone's time? But um, no, it sounds great. And, and you say about accountability. What was it about the accountability that you learned from uh, Pat Fox? Well, I, I often think that um, management and leadership is becoming a bit of a lost art. I think a lot of people rely so heavily on on technologies or um, or process, they forget there's there's a bit of an art there. Um, and one of the arts that that Pat Fox set for us were were boundaries. You know what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. What you could flex on and what you couldn't. Um, and when you're in a situation like I mean, as a fitness coach, you know, we, we had, we had situations where we turn up to trainings and, and perhaps weren't in the best physical shape or hadn't done the prep. And we had to go through it anyway. It was part of our contribution to the team. But at the same time, he did a really wonderful job of understanding that we were people and giving us the, the space and the flex we needed when it was required. Um, you know, some of it was some of it was youthful stupidity. Um, we we used to have to do fitness tests, and for some reason, we thought it would be funny to have a big rugby social the night before those fitness tests, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, but he would hold us accountable to that. And we had to do it anyway. I like um, it. Yeah. And <laughs> when my when my grandmother passed, he um, he was instrumental in kind of getting me through that and giving me the flexibility that I needed. I think that was a really, really foundational moment for me. Sounds like your grandmother was very important to you. Just say a bit more. All of my grandparents were very important to me for for uh, different reasons, real, real host of characters. So on my mother's side, um, my grandfather was a policeman um, who, again, I'm going to misquote the year, but he was, he was man of the year in, in I think the seventies or the eighties, after his involvement in a um, in a in a jewelry store robbery, you know, he met the Queen. Never once mentioned it. This was this was a uh, a plaque that was on the wall in our in our downstairs bathroom growing up. And I don't think I was I think I was about eleven or twelve when I finally read it and realised what he was. But phenomenal guy. Um, my my grandmother was a teacher, and uh, she was the one I referenced there. And sadly, she passed away um, of Alzheimer's when I was about fifteen. Uh, 16, uh, sorry, 18, 19, it's after I met Pat. So, yeah, it was a um, uh, it was a very tough time. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, my, my mother all had Alzheimer's and we were looking after her here for about three years, the last three years before she died. And it's just not funny. It, it's just mm -hmm. the worst, cruelest thing because you have someone there, but they're already dead in effect because mm -hmm. they, they don't know you, they can't remember who you are. And they get more and more confused. But what is very interesting in all the research that I'm listening to and reading at the moment is this um, uh, this one about brain energy, which I would have mentioned uh, one of the books I uh, listened to, that um, uh, mental health uh, problems are are metabolic dysfunctions of the brain. 
so actually people think oh it's just inherited it you know you're bound to get alzheimer's it's because my grandmother did. no actually a lot of it is the environment and the um the food that you have and things like that any toxins that you might have taken which will affect your metabolism which will then affect uh through the uh, uh body brain barrier it will affect your brain mm. as well so particularly lack of sleep and things like this and beta amyloid so it's it, it is a good reminder to us to look after ourselves in our fitness our health our sleep and and what we put into our bodies because it will affect our brains um well let's talk about the second one you talked about two who, who was the second inspiring leader and what was it about them um I've, I've really tried to pick two individuals who who were at very different points in my life and um the second one is actually a chap named Mark Westmoreland, um, who I have only recently started to work with. I, I think I met him during the pandemic, uh, obviously not face to face, 2021, um, 2020, sometime, sometime around then. Um, he is now my my business partner um, at a company we founded called Guideline, which is a, a regulatory consulting firm here in the US. Um, but what's sort of fascinating and uh, very influential for me with Mark. The, the, the company that I started working for, um, which is obviously still going strong, is JCW. It's a headhunting firm. And um, it was really where I learned everything about, you know, relationship forming and professional capacity. And funnily enough, the, the concept for Guideline had come about um, in conversations. And I had suggested to my some of my senior teams, hey, I'm interested in speaking to people um, who have this kind of experience. And I was introduced to Mark, um, who was a 30-year veteran, you know, lawyer uh, extraordinaire, went into the consulting world, had all these weird and wild uh, stories. Um, But he is one of the first people who um, I have interacted with on a business level who is much senior to me and has a very different viewpoint, but is an avid learner, a hungry learner. Um, and we we probably spend half of our updates talking about business and the other half talking about books and stuff that we've experienced. Uh, I had a great conversation this week about personality types and, you know, the red, blue, green, yellow sort of thing. Um, and he's really, he's really kind of opened my eyes up to the fundamental knowledge that can be gained by making sure that your network is not just people who are in a similar journey or a similar you know peership to you there is so much to learn from those senior to you and even those you know those juniors you haven't experienced it yet it's Mm. um it's it's been a fascinating experience with him yeah and and let's just stay with that that whole thing about you know mark's uh hunger to learn and grow mine and yours and i think this was when we first uh had a checking each other out um it was the thing that i felt was a real bond between us is we both love learning. We were almost from very early on starting to sort of swap stories in this book and that book and what we've learned here and there. And and I I know few leaders like you who are so hungry to learn and then apply in order to be a better leader in the way that you lead the people that you're with. And to be open to 360 feedback and go, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm always work in progress until the day we die, we're always work in progress. Uh, and then it's too late to learn. But uh, I think of Marcus Aurelius, um, the emperor, who, you know, was caught by someone with his tablets, you know, that they wrote on their clay tablets or whatever it was. 
heading to a lesson from a Stoic philosopher. And, you know, he was late in life and not long for this world. And they went, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some more learning. He, like, couldn't understand why even in late life people are interested in learning. Because I think when you stop learning, you know, everything dries up a bit. But what, what's been your driving force for this whole area of lifelong learning and growth? Because it's, it's something in you. <laughs> Uh, me and me and Marcus are, are peas in a pod. Actually, it, it came late for me. Um, so, I had a f- phenomenal childhood, um, but I definitely had more fun than I should have, and I spent a lot of time thinking that I would be a professional rugby player and that that would all work out and it would be very straightforward. And I, I, I was not good enough on any level. I. Uh, I got into a, a pretty good rugby program at university and um, and just thought I knew it all. Um, and uh, it's something I've tried to combat ever since. But it wasn't until it wasn't until I moved to America, and I think really when I met my wife, um, who is a you know she's a speed reader, she'll read a book a day, that I really realised the power of that. And I think that I'm sort of in a rush to learn ever since. Um, I, I don't regret a moment of my, my childhood and my university upbringing, but for me, it was, uh, I was definitely an arrogant so-and-so and, and sort of thought I knew it all, uh, and didn't need to learn. Um, and I, I don't think it was until I stopped playing rugby that I realized time for a change, you know? Yeah, it, it is a really good point. And I think there's this fine balance between, on the one end, you've got lacking in confidence, that imposter syndrome, doubting yourself. And then the other end, this sort of supreme self-confidence that that you know it all, that you're the smartest man in the room. And, and I think rather than being a know-it-all, I read something recently, which I thought was quite relevant, was to be a learn-it-all. Uh, and to have that, if I'm just writing this week's um uh sort of newsletter, and, and the, the topic is on this one, I'm just looking at my my notes here about being afraid of criticism and um, don't be a know-it-all because it, it it will actually affect your credibility because when people find that you don't know it all, you are utterly ridiculed by people. And so I think I, I think of one of the guests on the podcast, General Sir Rupert Smith, who was the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. I mean, couldn't get much more uh, impressive than that, but he was a parachute regiment officer who commanded an armoured division. They went, what do parachute regiment officers know about commanding armoured formations? It should be cavalry. And uh, he was one of the best they ever had. But when he came into one of the conferences as the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander, um, they were preparing for a briefing and they were clearly stuck on some topic. And they went, uh, they could see the, the general standing at the back. And he he just slumped in one of the, um, uh, the theatre chairs and put his feet up on the row in front. And he was just listening. And they went, oh, General, you know, what do you think the, the right answer is? He goes, guys, I haven't got a clue. That's why I got you lot there. So what do you think? And he put it straight back to them. And, and to actually be okay not knowing, I think it's a real skill for us as a leader. And I remember those questions for a CEO. Question one, when was the last time you were dead wrong? Question two, how quickly did you realize that you were wrong? And question three, how quickly did you rectify the situation, apologize to people and do something about it? Now, I've had some CEOs go, let me think about that, John. Was it in the early 1970s 
uh, could have been the 1980s. I, I, I can't think of a time I've actually been wrong. And he go, whoa, there's a problem. You know, that's 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 right at the heart of it. You're like, never wrong. And then, you know, you got the good ones and they go, do you know what? About three or four times a day, if not more. And in fact, if you ask my partner, they'll tell you I'm often wrong. So um, I think that's very interesting. And actually, I do admire you, by the way. In the 360, you, you, uh, you did invite Antonio, your wife, to give some feedback into your 360. So that was, that was did, yeah. very useful. Okay, um, let's talk a bit more about uh, experiences that have shaped you into the leader you are today. You talked, uh, you talked about a couple of those people there who shaped you beginning and, 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 and end of time, you talked about grandparents. Uh, what, what about your parents and their values and what they passed on to you? And um, you, you, I've, I've chatted to your brother, Richard, I also chatted to your wife. Um, you know who's who's shaped you into the leader you are we meeting today well i mentioned my mother's grandparents uh, my mother's parents I, I i think it's fundamental to mention my father's um parents as well so my my grandfather rob was a um pilot in the raf um uh passed away when i was relatively young i don't i i, I didn't know him very well um but uh he's he's sort of been a fascinating individual through the stories that my my grandmother my father's mother um has told and i think that um one of the most foundational people in my life was uh, granny halstead we used to call her old gran because she was older than my other gran new gran which was <laughs> now i think about it not acceptable but we didn't say it to her face um and she she had this thick yorkshire accent and just she was this wonderful woman and i think that she she had this incredible balance of uh taking things seriously but having fun that i really try to push every single day you can talk about a serious topic and not make it a miserable topic and i think that is very very frequently missed um her her catchphrase was no experience is wasted um and I think she spent most of her time wasted, to be honest. So I, uh, I, uh, I really admired her, and that, you know, that fed into into um, my father and and his philosophy. Um, I think it's worth noting that I have, I have four older brothers. I have three uh, natural and, uh, and adopted, um, and spent my life um, learning from them and seeing them develop and. Um, we're incredibly close so i think that i think that my grandmother was foundational and that that fed into everything else that i did and i think that most of um what your family does is is legacy based you know you mm. you learn from those above you fairly consistently yeah it, it is fascinating and you and i've talked about the uh the hoffman institute program mm. uh at length uh which i think at some stage you're going to do but it is very interesting, this point about that, that age of our adolescence where you learn about negative love or love deficit and what you try and do to avoid that, whether you copy parents, grandparents, or you do exactly the opposite. It's a very interesting one. Well, um, having, uh, having brothers, you are constantly in competition, whether yeah. or not you know it. And um, I was the youngest. I was, you know, my oldest brother's six years older than me. The, the one directly above me is, uh, is two, but three academic, two academic years. Um, I, 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 I don't think I ever knowingly compared myself to them, but I certainly did almost every day. It's, uh, it's a very interesting sibling relationship, those ones. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it can happen with sisters as well, or brother and sister. Uh, it's just whatever 
Um, I mean, you know, there was Boris's brother who actually shot him because the the, the father was always uh, saying Boris was the golden child, and uh, the others I think loathed him as much as some people do in in uh, the public. But uh, that's most interesting. Uh, talking <clears throat> about our lives, we all have some dark moments, uh, and if you don't, then you're very lucky, and I'm most pleased for you. But if you were to think about one of the dark moments in your personal life or your work life. What was the learning from it? Because as like everything that happens to us, sometimes things don't work out. But what did you learn and what did you what did you do differently as a result of that dark moment? I get I get asked this question a lot. Um and I'm a I, I'm a fairly frustratingly um positive person in, in terms of my outlook on things. Um and what I've really learned across the last sort of five, 10 years um, is that, that failure in and of itself is not a good thing. You know, learning from failure is an incredibly good thing. And that seems to be the thing that a lot of motivational speakers forget, you know, failure in and of itself, not great. It's, it's how do you adapt post failing? And when I think about my business career, there isn't a time I can pinpoint where I've had, you know, a moment where I've really walked home and just sort of, but it's all coming to an end. It's it's all horrendous. But I do remember very specifically a time when I think everyone else thought that moment was for me. And um, it was it was 2017 or 2018. It was in the New York office. The, the business was probably about 20, 25 people deep. Um, and we had a week where all of the deals that we'd done, all of the revenue that we were expecting had just dropped out. Um, and people carried on coming up to me and saying, are you, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, I think they all thought I was about to throw myself out the window. Um, and I remember really vividly thinking I'm, I'm fine because every single thing that happened was not only my fault for failing to safeguard or upskill or train, but it was also something I could rectify in the future. And I know that sounds really like, frustratingly humble or ambivalent or something it was it was definitely a horrible time that I, I wish hadn't happened but I think my mindset is that if you see problems solely as problems you're always going to have problems you know um, and if you can change a problem in your mind to something to overcome and develop you'll actually have a, a far more satisfying experience that that dopamine will get released in your brain a lot more frequently and you'll, you'll feel great so I, yeah i think that's it's a, a rambling response but I, yeah. I think that sums it up for me that's good and um you know you've got uh, you and antonio got one child and in mm -hmm. next month you've got another one on the way congratulations yeah. i hope all that goes 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 smoothly um you're going to have at some stage chance to chat with these young people um imagine that you go back in back to the future car to when you were 16 to 18 years old knowing what you know now what advice would you give either to your children or to the younger you based on the successes and the failures that you had i'd uh, i'd explain to them that the 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 real Irish exit is to order a drink and then leave the bar, so everyone thinks you're coming back. That's the first thing that I would I would tell them. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the the answer is a stupid one, purely on the basis that I think 
advice is is endless. Uh, yesterday, I was sitting down with um, Nick Giordano, chap who runs our Boston office, and we had this really in-depth sort of chat and series of advice, um, which was about why you don't ask why questions instead of how and what. And it was something I'd only learned a little while ago. So I sort of think that sitting down with my son and giving him the information, I'm just going to try and slow drip for years and years and years. Um, but on that note, you know, if I if I could only give him one piece of advice, it would be the failing that I had in and of myself, which is to read more, you know, learn um, and be excited about learning, understanding that once you've learned it, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily directly applicable to you. But, you know, put yourself out there for as much experience as you uh, you possibly can uh, and just get hungry, you know? I, I love that. And, and in fact, it's reminding me, uh, you know, I've talked about my, my dyslexia and dyscalculia where, you know, numbers was a problem um, as, as was reading. And so I really struggled to read. But if only as I've been growing up, they had had audiobooks and podcasts. And, you know, I spend most of my day with some kind of uh, earphones. And I've now got myself some um, wonderful ones. They're called shocks. And they, they go over your ears here. And they, they I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being paid. <laughs> These ones that, that do the, the, they the vibrate. They vibrate on yeah, the bones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it means that you can, you can actually hear a conversation. That I'm doing my cycling. Um, I can cycle along uh, without getting run over or mowed down because I'm not hearing any of the traffic coming. Um, but it, it's just a great way for me to learn. And I wish I'd found that medium for learning when I was growing up because I, I was very, very much a late developer. Um, and um, a bit like you, we're, we're working hard to catch up. Let's go around the compass. Let's go around the compass next. Uh, yeah. Moral quotient. The um, what did you learn on an occasion or occasions when you let your own values slip? Um, so I, I th uh, for me, I think anyone who's worked with me knows how important the relationships in my life are, and my most frequent piece of advice is is family first I, I i've said this sort of a thousand times to people who i work with uh, family first family first um and i've i've sort of learned that the hard way um i all of my brothers and my my parents um live in england and all france um and i live in i live in boston massachusetts i, I have done since 2012 and as a result of that you lose touch with people very easily um, when you're not when you're not seeing them on a daily basis, or you don't have the action, the opportunity, or you know, um, have a relationship in person. It really changes things. I'm very fortunate in that I have to go back to England a lot for work, so I do get to see them. Um, but there was sort of this moment of realization when COVID kicked in, when you couldn't see anyone, you know, and all of a sudden the volume of communication with my family just dramatically increased. Um, and it was sort of a weird one because it was driven by the situation, but it didn't need to be. Um, I, I started talking to my parents almost daily. Um, you know, texts with my brothers increased. I was, I was calling them more, I was speaking more to them. And I think that 
it's really, really easy to lose touch with people, really easy to lose touch with people, even if they're your family. Um, and I think my mistake, and even though I was quoting that to other people even before that time, I probably wasn't living it myself. Um, and as a result of that, I created this little system for myself, which I've talked to you about previously, which is my, my Monday rules. Um, so a lot of people do this manifestation process where they, where they write down where they want to be in a set amount of time. And they read that kind of each week or each day and, and figure out what they need to do to get there. And, um, sadly I'm, I'm not that intelligent. I don't think I can think a year in advance. Um, and instead what I had to do for me was create a list of rules that I would read to myself on a weekly basis that was not where I wanted to get to, but who I wanted to be. And um, one of those rules, which is absolutely ridiculous, is be like Stanley Tucci in Easy A. Uh, it's a movie, it's got Stanley Tucci in it, um, and he is just a really, really incredible family figure. Um, he's very warm and welcoming and open and interested. And um, when I think about how I want to be perceived, especially by my family, I think about that an awful lot. I like that. Monday rules in which you you do them. I've got my milestone priorities, how I personalize my life map with year number one, Lee, quality time with her, love, care, dates and joyfulness. Two, our four children, two grandchildren, my brother Graham, to love and support them. Three, our fitness, health, relaxation, time, mental well-being. Four, my first priority client. Five, delight existing clients, six, select CEOs as podcast guests and convert them to clients, and seven, win new clients, CEOs and top teams. And then at the bottom, shed 80% of what I do every year, be world-class as a leadership advisor and a coach. And it's sort of like my check-in with myself, but I think yeah. yours is better. It's a way of how are you going to be, but I do the daily five-minute journal.com, yeah. which is yeah, also yeah. A, a good reminder to me. And I also do my Hoffman journal, which is 365 days. And that each day gives a different challenge, which might be about, uh, you know, what have you noticed in nature? Just just go around today noticing birds and animals and what you notice in nature or uh, an act of kindness to someone uh, without them knowing about it. I think, I See, think this, it's a problem. This is the problem with chatting to you, because uh, as soon as you say, oh, I think yours is better, I don't think it's better or worse. I think it's what works for each person. That's a really important note. But now that you've said yours, I want to go off and research <laughs> yours. <laughs> and I think I want to do yours. That's typical. Isn't it typical? Well, it's, it's it's so um, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, and she said, what are your rules? And you've just read yours out. I don't think I've ever said mine to anyone but myself. And actually, mm -hmm. I, I realized I don't want to. Because not only do they change, and some of them are sort of stupid and silly, and some of them are insecurities, but... I also think it's really important sometimes to just have something for yourself, you know, yeah. just something that's important to you and, and you do for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I think it, it is good. I mean, but we are human beings rather than human doings, aren't we? And it's the way we're being. And I, I know when I'm, I'm losing track of being completely compassionate of myself and the way I show up when I, I start thinking about other things rather than being here now in the moment so so my one of my morning rituals which is which is a lovely way is when i get up and i've done the journal and brush my teeth i go down uh with the with the dogs put them out and a couple of things in the in the kitchen such as sort of a couple of supplements and things and then i go and sit in the hot tub for five minutes listening to um calm the daily calm 
Uh, and then I go into the cold plunge for two minutes. And that's that gets me going for the day. I'm I'm up. And and I I try for the last year, not try, because trying is lying, but I I do for the last year, I think almost without missing a day. I've if I've been here, I've I've gone and done those those things. It's like it's a little set routine. It's my morning bookends and my evening bookends that that that's the bit I can control. The rest of the day will run away yeah. with all sorts of things. But but um even Lee, my wife now, she's starting to go, I actually think I want to have my training session in the morning as well, because you don't actually do anything until 10. You don't start meeting clients until 10 because there's the dog walking and there's, you know, breakfast, things like that. Uh, he said, but you're set for the day. You're, you're really happy yeah. for the day. And I think that's that's uh, important. Let's talk about purpose, PQ, the second one, meaning and purpose. What gives your life meaning and purpose, Ed? An ever-changing target. When when I was younger, um, it was about sports, and um, and I think a lot of that stems from you know, I, I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day with me. It stems from being the youngest of four and wanting the attention of my parents and everything else. And I I actually think that was why I ended up playing so much rugby as a kid. Um, me and my dad were incredibly close over my over my rugby time he i don't think he missed a match until i was about 20 she <laughs> must have been there for hundreds of them um and then when i reached the early part of my career i was i was incredibly money driven um i had by no means grown up in a poor environment but i had grown up in an environment where there wasn't uh, abundance and opulence and I I wanted that um, and I think it's important to note a, a lot of people get nervous about saying they're driven by money um, because it, it promotes thoughts of greed I don't necessarily agree with that I, I think if you can be honest with yourself about what drives you you're more likely to go into something that will make you happy but over over time it's become less about the money by a really long way uh, and much more about the relationships mm -hmm. and what you gain from those relationships. And I, I've, I've written the, the management training course for the organization and it's by far the most rewarding thing I do because every single manager I've, I've seen them come up, I've seen them progress. Some of them are in, in you know, big spots now, some of them in, on their way up to big things. And I think that's probably the most rewarding thing. Um, I'm, I'm 35 and there are people who have worked with me for 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope they work for me for another 15 years or with me for another 15 years. Cause I, I just love that you have that, that bond. Um, and I think the funny thing about that, that money to relationship, it's become less about having more and more about appreciating what you've got. Yeah. Isn't that the difference between happiness and success? Success is getting what you want. <clears throat> happiness is wanting what you already have. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in my gratitude journal, a lot of the time I'm appreciating the very things I do have. Now, I've, I've strived hard like you to make sufficient money to be able to pay for all the different things I have. Um and um, but it, it is interesting as you're talking about money, it, it made me think a number of the people I've come across in the executive search field are very uh, driven by making a lot of money. It, it seems to be a, 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 a theme. And I don't know whether you've seen this, but it seemed to be, oh, yeah. a, be a theme. I think it's it's uh, recruitment appears to have been invented in 
in uh, in London. Um, and it sort of develops into this um, lad culture. And I think that the the industry is going through a bit of a revolution. But the reason that that it it's sort of um, very prevalent in the recruitment industry is because recruitment is one of those industries where you can earn a lot of money and you aren't required to have a specific background or training or experience. You know, if you're, it's eat what you kill. If you're very good at it, you're very good at it. If you're not, you can't do it. Um, and I think that's probably where it stems from. But yeah, it's it's ever prevalent uh, in the uh, in the industry. Yeah, no, most interesting. And I, I, I wondered if that was what I'd, I'd spotted and it seems to be a, a theme. The next one is the, the third of the... Uh, the things that seem to make people high performing in what they do as inspiring leaders is health. And uh, many, many leadership models seem to miss out health, mental health, brain health, uh, physical health, well-being. Uh, how do you keep yourself healthy yet? A um, couple of years back, I read a book called uh, Brain on Fire. Um, which I, I think they're about to make it into a, a movie or a HBO series. Or something. Um, it is about a uh, woman who experiences um, uh, mental health crisis in many ways um, and is sort of trapped in her own brain. But most importantly, it gave me the message that you should think about mental health in the same way you think about physical health. Um, now I'm very fortunate. I've never had a major mental health problem, but, um, a couple of years ago, I had a bout of depression that kind of came out of nowhere. I, I was very much taken aside by it. And, um, it occurred to me having read this book that if you break your arm, you go see a doctor. If you break your brain, you, you sort of keep it to yourself. Uh, and I think that it's completely the wrong way to think about mental health because I'd much rather break my arm than my brain. Mm. Um, and I learned from that a, a series of, of elements to make sure that mental health was on par. And I think that's more what I've learned. The physical health stuff is a weird one. I, I have a confession to make in that I bought my cold plunge tub after having a conversation with you and it's still in the garage because <laughs> I can't imagine anything worse than getting a in a bath of cold water um but physical health for me it's it's been quite a traditional path of you know eat right work out it's the mental health that's been the most interesting over the last couple of years yeah it is interesting um i, I think people are more willing to talk about uh brain health and mental health and depression than they were i don't know, even five years ago uh you know i've had i've had bouts of depression um luckily i'm in a, a very good place and have been for a few years now but before that, yeah, yeah, I had some some pretty dark times, and uh, one time, some some time ago, when I was in the the depths of my uh, divorce from my first wife, I, I was really thinking of taking my own life, and and that's a very serious thing mm. to contemplate. Uh, men tend to be a bit more dangerous about what they do and more violent in the act they take than women. The the, the uh, but I, I still think it's something that. Um, to be able to talk about it and uh, to realize that you're not alone. Um, uh, we've we've helped out a good friend of ours who was in a very, very bad space. And he came and lived with us for a while just to get him through a time where I don't think um, people said he wouldn't have been alive had he had we not taken him in. He would have he would have killed himself. And I think that's 
something that really makes me realize you don't see it as you were saying you can see a broken leg uh, you can see a gash to a hand you can't see a gash to the brain and um it is something that you need to be more understanding of others so yeah. thank you thank you for talking about that yeah. There's a there's a strange trend going on at the moment that I've I've noticed. We we have a lot of um uh Gen Zers in our organization, a lot of a lot of younger people. Um one of the main routes for growth for the organization is to hire straight out of university. And there's a there's a real difference between I'm a millennial. Um I'm not sure what you are actually, Jonathan. A, An old bastard, I think. Cave caveman, yeah. yeah. Uh <laughs> uh Millennials were sort of grew up, you know. I I would call it with a wet sponge. You remember, like you, you get hurt on the rugby pitch and they run out with a wet sponge. Um, and we all we all sort of lock it inside. Um, and it's really great to see Gen Z opens talking about it. But what I I frequently noticed is that it's sometimes like we've all been taught it's okay to talk about it now, but actually it's the action that needs to happen. And sometimes that's a bit lacking. Um, it's great that the first step on that journey is to have the conversation and normalize the conversation. Problem is that that's sometimes where it stops and it, it shouldn't be. Um, you've got to take action. And I think if, you know, looking back on the advice I'd have for my son, it's don't try and solve that problem yourself. Go and see a doctor. That That's what they're there for, you know, or, or you know, seek guidance or seek mentorship. You are so right. And and really on that line, when I was in a very deeply depressed and suicidal thoughts, I actually took action myself. So didn't want to get addicted to pills because I think the pills don't work. Um, and, and instead, I worked on health. Uh, I, I worked on sleep. I worked on the food I ate, uh, the, the materials I put inside my brain. Uh, taking action on things that needed to be done that were stressing me rather than avoiding them. I, I almost as soon as the problem came up, I would go and do something about it, take an action, move things forward. And and also the love and support of Lee and uh, my daughters as well. Uh, I think those kind of things are very important to have people who care about you, love you, and and you have talked it through, but then you need to do something about it. And if, if it is, as the research is now starting to indicate, a metabolic dysfunction that causes our mental health issues, then we need to do something about our improving our metabolic health. And I don't know what it is in the UK, but in America, 93.5% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So there's a big problem already there, but it mm. is linked not just to obesity and uh, diabetes, and um, various other links to type 3 diabetes, otherwise known as Alzheimer's, but also to mental, mental health problems. Let's move on to emotional and social intelligence. Um, one of the great skills of people who have good EQ is listening. And how do you listen well to other people, Ed? <laughs> I think I only learned to listen recently, probably in conversation with you. Um, so one of the uh, best pieces of advice um, I ever, ever had was listen to understand, don't listen to reply. Um, and 
it took me a really a lot longer than it should have to apply that in um, in relation, and I, I think it came from being in a sales position. So I think when you first learn to be a salesperson, you're thinking about what's the right thing to say, what's the right thing to say, what's the right thing to say, and as you develop in your career as a salesperson, you realize that the right thing is to say is the response to what they have said to you, not you know the golden gun phrase that's going to land you it um and sometimes in sales that means walking away from potentially persuading someone into something they don't want to do um now everyone seems to have have developed this theory that if you if you're going to learn to be good at one thing if you want to be you know in the c-suite you should be good at sales because at the end of the day everything comes down to sales and i think it's true i just think they're thinking about the wrong side of it it's not about being able to persuade do things it's about learning through listening and then being able to say how to take action off the back of that that's so well put and you know i'm a trained by craig valentine who's going to come on this course he's the world-class uh champion in speaking public speaking um and uh so he's trained me to be a speaker's coach but actually, I think the greatest skill, the one that isn't very well developed, everybody's going, public speaking, public speaking, you need to train, be better at that. I find it very hard. It's better. But actually, who's training you at listening? You know, who's the world-class uh, champion at listening? And, uh, you know, almost we laugh at even thinking about that because it's not done enough. But you can achieve far more through listening. And just one great question. Like, uh, I, I love the one that um someone taught me which i used with either harriet or brani when they were about five no they must be about seven perhaps and they said daddy i can't do x whatever it was and i said okay and if you could do it how would you do it and they went oh i'd do it this way daddy and i went without even a second blip they they knew their brain went looking that if you could how would you do it and and it's just there and many well, people fun. many people fail to to look for the right question yeah and it's funny because so much of this stems from your childhood and i think the reason that i was such a terrible listener for a large proportion of my life was because i was the youngest brother and i just naturally had this assumption that no one wanted to listen to me which they probably didn't you know i was a young brother uh and so it kind of pushes you down this route of like no i need i need to speak first so that people listen to me it's taken a really long time to break that i wouldn't say i've even actually managed it at this point but i'm trying you know? <laughs> trying is lying you either you will you will or you won't do is it as luke I will. says i will okay well let's go on to cq cultural intelligence quotient hmm. how, how do you get on with people who are very different to you ed uh i i think that um culture conceptually especially when building it in a business is actually a really simple thing um but it's a very hard thing to enact so for me culture stems from safety and i i talk about this a lot during training courses it doesn't matter how different you are what your opinion is how you feel about it what matters is whether or not you think you can express yourself or how you feel or what you want to say. And when I look at environments that have a bad reputation for being bad cultures, it tends to stem from a leader who people feel like they can't disagree with. 
Um, and I've, we, we see it time and time again in our businesses. We've never nailed the training on this. It's a very difficult thing to do because that boundary of power versus relationship is this very thin line to tread because there are things that it's acceptable to hear and there are things that it is, it is not acceptable. And you learn that through years and years and years of experience of interacting with people. So on a base level, when I think about how different people can be, if you can create an environment of safety, you have an exponentially easier job of making people comfortable and wanting to be around. Um, that then enables you to build trust. Mm -hmm. um, and don't get me wrong, you never get it right 100% of the time. Um, mm -hmm. There are people in our organization who think credible culture, all that we want. And there are people who think it's the worst place they've ever been. Mm -hmm. um, but they always felt safe to voice those concerns. No, it's, it's, it's a good reply. I, I like that. And then resilience is something you and I have talked about many times. Um, how have you picked yourself up in times of adversity? Uh, well, it all, it all echoes back to those relationships and family mm -hmm. first. Um, you, you can't, you can't, solve the problem with the same thinking that created the problem and when you're seeing something as a problem it, it oftentimes takes uh, an external perspective to change your mind and my wife who i will talk my wonderful wife who i will talk about endlessly i'm sure she's listening um uh has been a rock for me in that perspective even last night we'd had a falling out the night before um and it was something every married couple goes through um and uh we just had a disagreement and escalated and you know before you know we were upset with each other and weren't talking anymore uh, but it was my fault and um i came back the next day and i said i'm sorry you know i was wrong and she said i'm sorry i was wrong too and all of a sudden everything was absolutely fine and so when i think about resilience i really do think about leaning on the people who have my back when I need it. Um, and that's not just family, it's, it's business as well. There's a lot of people in the business who do that for me. Um, oh. Funny enough, uh, this year, we, we have an annual black tie in London. And uh, this year, a, a number of uh, people who, who work with me, funny enough, in our, in our systems enablement team, called me and said, if you ever need anything, go have a chat. And the truth is that I'm sort of pretty happy most of the time. I'm a, I'm a really positive guy. Um, and uh, I think they just wanted me to be a bit more upset than I was. <laughs> I thought, no, I, I tend to go to my family first before I go to my uh, to my systems enablement team for relationship support. But you know what? I feel safe with you, so I wouldn't hesitate. Oh. That's, that's nice. And and thinking about the systems enablement team and uh, you know, your brand and your reputation with different people, Um mm -hmm. What have you learned from the 360 feedback that we did together? What's that you're learning? Um, I think the the most profound thing that I learned from that is um, perception is incredibly important and you, you can't assume clarity of message. Uh, what, what I say and what is heard are going to be two different things and that's a, a, a very difficult thing to control what might seem 
um, appropriate to one person seems inappropriate to another. What might seem um, like I did a good job of it to me may not feel like it's been a good job to them. And what I really learned was the importance of seeking feedback, going out and asking for it because people love to do it. And if, again, you've got that environment of safety, they feel comfortable doing it as well. Um, it's not the first time I've learned that, but, you know, it's all cycles. You you come back to it. That's great. Uh, final one, going around the campus before we talk about teams and books and your final one, is legacy. What would you like your legacy to be at? So you 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 had sent an email um, sort of prepping me for some of these questions ahead of the podcast, and I, I worked my way through it, and I you know I thought about them, and this one really stumped me because I got to be honest, I've never thought about it before um, at all. And so I did, I, I went out and I, I, I sought something back and I thought about what was important to me and what do I want to leave to your legacy. And I think that what I kind of landed on is that I just sort of want to, people to think of me as someone who they're grateful was in their life. Um, I think if I'm doing, you know, small things for good people, that's actually enough for me. And it sounds really cliche, but it's true. I I hope that one day I say something profound and it helps people in the future. But actually, if if I'm forgotten sort of 40 years after I go, it's not the end of the world to me. It's it, it's a, it's a weird one. I don't I don't think that answers your question very well, but it um, it's where I got to in thinking about it. And, and it's it's where you're at right now. And I, yeah. I like I liked one that I thought of the other day, which is when people think of me that they smile. And, you know, that when I'm gone and just that, that maybe I just inspire a little bit of leadership in them or or, or touch their lives in a in a positive way. Um it, it is an interesting one. And um you go down to some of these monuments and bridges and there's names that are, are long gone. I found it actually quite moving going back to the battlefields of the first and second world war. Uh, there was a place where the SS uh, massacred about 97 members of the Norfolk Regiment and their names are all there. Um, uh, they'd surrendered and they should have been kept as prisoners of war, but they just machine gunned them to death uh, when they disarmed them. And, and you think, will people ever remember their names? Well, their family did. Um, and, and I think legacy is is important for us to think about the impact that we're making or not. Let's go on to executive teams. Um, when you've had an individual or a team that wasn't kind of working, maybe gone a bit toxic, uh, how do you turn around a toxic team in your experience? So there's this wonderful writer that I know I've um, suggested to you before called Cy Wakeman. Um, and she has a book called Reality-Based Leadership, which um, was fairly transformational for me when I when I read it um, and she has this piece about avoiding drama um, and she basically has this theory that that uh, 95% of wasted time in business comes from indulging in drama uh, and she gives this wonderful role play about an individual who goes to a HR executive to say that so and so is always late and that's a problem she kind of breaks this problem down and what I have found as a result of you know reading this and learning this is that if you can remove emotion from a difficult situation entirely, 
and break it down to the honest facts of the situation. Not good versus bad, but what is and what isn't. Then it becomes immediately easier to solve that issue. Now, sometimes in the communication of that, you can come across patronizing, which is very, very difficult. And I I had a, a situation this morning with an individual that's getting a little bit heated and I, I accidentally became a little bit patronizing in a way I was trying to solve the problem. But again, it, it wasn't about what was good versus bad. It was about what was happening and what wasn't. Um, and I think that when you're, when you're in a particularly toxic situation, that's one of the most important things to bear in mind, just to avoid the drama. I like that. And um, I will look up reality-based leadership, which is on to my next topic. Favourite book? If it wasn't uh, reality-based leadership or brain on fire, what would it be? F- uh, business or fiction? I never know what you what you want me to uh, say. I think a, a business leadership book would be quite good. Okay. Fiction's Lonesome Dove, if you want to. Yeah, I've got uh, it on my I've got it on my bedside <laughs> table. It's a massive. It's tone. massive. Yeah, I, I and, feel and, bad. And of course, I should have actually got the audio version because that, as a dyslexic, completely freezes me up, and I'm just the, it's sitting there, lonesome dove. And maybe I'll take it with this, me to Morocco when we go and holiday. Yeah, listen to that one. It's it's uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, so I think that the the book that had the most profound effect on me, and I usually have a copy around. I don't have one right now. Um, is a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Mm-hmm. Um, Jocko Willink's sort of become a, a pretty big sort of podcast uh, person now, and he's he's sort of in that uh, Joe Rogan movement a little bit, I guess. Um, but when he left the Navy SEALs, uh, him and a guy called Leif Baben wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And the principle of it was taking the concept of um, military management and applying it to uh, business management in, in the civilian world. Um, and I think the core message of it is about ownership and accountability and how you, as a leader, solve problems through um, taking control of a situation and holding yourself accountable. Um, and it's one of the it's one of the only books that in the management course I teach, has its own segment, you know, um, and we sort of recommend it to everyone. Fantastic. Well, Ed, would you kindly introduce yourself, uh, say the role you have, what you do, and share finally your two-minute top leadership tip? Yeah, so I am at Halstead. I'm the COO for SearchCap and a founding principal. SearchCap is an organization that focuses on the development of organizations in the talent space. Um, my two minute top tip. Um, so whenever I am approached on the first thing that you should get good at as a manager, the first thing that always pops into my mind is probably the one that people think about the least. And that is assessment of an issue. Now, um, I utilize a method called Isolate to Execute, which comes from the book Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko Willink. Um, the concept is very simple, and it kind of echoes back to the, the age-old um, saying of if I was asked to cut down a tree, I spent the first 30 minutes sharpening the axe. What you want to do in management is make sure that you never assume the problem. A really good example of this is a lot of people say, oh, their intensity is low in sales. 
Unfortunately, saying that someone's intensity is low in sales doesn't actually provide an actionable solution to the problem. There are reasons that they appear to have that problem. And if you can break down those problems more simply, maybe they spend too much time on instant messenger or they read emails four times before they reply to them. If you can isolate the problem down, not to an area, but to a specific action point, you're going to find it so much easier to actually solve the problem. And unfortunately, what a lot of leaders do is assume they know what the problem is rather than trying to isolate it. I love that one. Uh, thank you. Very different from any of the others we've had. And so, uh, Holstead, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I love working with you as a leader and seeing you grow every month. And uh, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.